God, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for uh, this church and these people, these faithful uh, followers of Jesus who who come out week after week uh, on a Sunday night and just uh, just continue to seek to be faithful and honor you with their lives. Lord, I pray tonight that uh, we would be encouraged through your word to continue to be faithful in spite of the hard days that we live in, God. Um, we thank you for your word and, and for this time again. Pray that uh, your spirit would work in our hearts, that we would be willing to change in those areas that, that your spirit makes clear to us. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, like, like I said in my prayer, it's, it's, it's hard to figure out what to talk about on a Sunday night to the faithful 40 that I call them. <laughs> uh, we've got a, we've got a few extras here tonight, but, but you know, the ones who come to church on Sunday night, you guys are faithful, er, right? You are extra faithful. You, you continue to come out and you know everything. You know everything. And so what is my job uh, as a preacher on a Sunday night to people who already know everything? Um, and I take it that tonight my job is to encourage you, to encourage you to continue to be faithful. Um, and so that's what I hope to do tonight from, from the word. Uh, how many of you have seen The Avengers? Oh, look at, oh yeah. Okay. Rachel, Rachel only has two arms, but she's seen it three times. Um, and so, uh, there is, there is one line in that movie that is every Christian's favorite line, right? Uh, Captain America is about to leap out of the plane to chase after Thor and Loki, who are the two, uh, gods that they call them. And, and, uh, the Black Widow, the, the female spy says, I don't think you want to chase after them, Cap. They're basically gods. And Captain America says, there's only one god, ma'am. And I don't think he dresses like that, right? Because they're all dressed up in their Greek god, kind of clothes and Captain America says no there's one God um, but that movie is called the Avengers what do Avengers do they strike back they strike back they avenge the evil that is done on innocent and the oppressed do we need Avengers today do we do we need to be avenged today is there crime, is there injustice, is there dishonesty, is there betrayal, is there corruption in our lives, in our country, in our society? Is there? Who is avenging that? Or is there no avenger? Or are we just supposed to sit back and just watch everything happen? Who will avenge us? Who will take up our cause? Turn with me tonight to Psalm 94. Psalm 94 is a very poetic psalm. Lots of parallelism and imagery in this psalm. It's not a super long psalm. It's not Psalm 119, right? It's only 23 verses. Um, but 23 verses is still kind of a lot to go through in one sermon. So, But we will do it. And we'll go through it in sections as we dig into the text, okay? And what we're going to see is we're going to see five progressions. Five progressions of the author. From his cry of desperation and seeming hopelessness. Ending with an ultimate realization 
that God is able to definitively handle any situation. That's where we're going tonight. So our first theme, our first section of verses we're going to look at, verses 1 through 7. The reason for desperation. The reason for desperation. Our anonymous author clues us in on the context, on the extent of his desperation. We'll look at verses 1 through 3. O Lord, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? The writer begins with an urgent request to God, and he uses the covenant name of God that God has revealed to the Israelites. Yahweh. Wherever you see capital L-O-R-D in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew it means Yahweh. This is the name that God has used to show his special relationship that he had only with the Jews. Only the Jews could call God Yahweh. Because he was their special protector and provider. And in this psalm, the author is going to use this name of God 11 times in these 23 verses. Almost as a reminder to, to himself that God is not going to forsake me. Even though I'm desperate, I am in covenant relationship with Yahweh. But he also uses it almost as a prompt to God to say, hey, remember, you're our God. You're not going to let us be oppressed. You are going to preserve and defend us. You cannot break this covenant with us. It's almost like that old Bill Cosby comedy routine, right? Uh, the, he's, he's given his youngest child chocolate cake for breakfast. And the other children come down. Well, you know, chocolate cake has milk and eggs and all those good breakfast foods. And the other children come down and they say, hey, where'd you get this chocolate cake from? And the little kid says, Dad gave me chocolate cake. And so they look at him and they say, what do they say? Father, they, they, all of a sudden, we become so proper when we want something, right? We know exactly what to call someone when we want to get something from them. And the author is kind of doing that here as well. Um, not only does he appeal to his covenant relationship with God, but he also appeals to the very nature of God. The author calls Yahweh what? God of vengeance. And he repeats it. God of vengeance. Do you realize that vengeance is an attribute of God? The author knows who the ultimate avenger truly is. This is why God tells us over and over again, do not take your own vengeance, but leave room for the Lord, right? Now, we are made in the image of God, so when we experience injustice, we're very sensitive to it. God is sensitive to injustice. We're, in, we're sensitive to injustice. It's built into us. The problem is, we're also corrupted by sin. And so we don't know how to take vengeance properly. We either do it too little, we do it too much, we get vindictive. 
And even when we do it, we feel guilty afterwards. So God says, let me save you the trouble. That's my job. I am the one who's going to take vengeance. I will do it perfectly to those who wrong you. Because God is concerned about justice. He's not only concerned about being nice to everybody and, you know, when people willfully disobey him, he says, oh, that doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. I love you. Okay? He, no, he is concerned about justice. And his concern, it's based on righteous judgment. This is the attribute that the author is appealing to. And the author uses two imperatives to appeal to Yahweh, to plead with Yahweh. What does he say? He says, rise up, shine forth. He's calling on God. He's basically he's saying, get up off your throne and do something. Like the message says, show your true colors. In the midst of his situation, the author feels like God is just not doing enough. He's taking too long to act while these wicked people are doing whatever they want. And what do they do? They just boast about it. Isn't this where we often find ourselves? We wonder why God is not doing what we think he should be doing. And in the heat of the moment, we begin to doubt God's goodness and eventually get to the point where we say, is it worth it to continue to be faithful? We think of the honest businessman who doesn't make as much profit because he is accurately declaring on his customs form what he's actually bringing in, while the dishonest man makes a fortune. Think about a teenager who wants to honor God with their life, but they are shunned and ignored because of their faithfulness. Think about the person who is not jumping from relationship to relationship to relationship, but they want to wait for the right person. But all they feel is loneliness. Is, we begin to wonder, is that a waste of time? Is this faithfulness a waste of time? Should I take matters into my own hands? The author will address that uh, further down in the passage. Verses 4 through 7 help us to understand why the author was tired of waiting. Why he had gotten to this point because the situation was out of hand. Three verses 4 through 7. They pour forth words. They speak arrogantly. All who do wickedness vaunt themselves. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the orphans. They have said, the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. So it's not that the the wicked are doing things secretly and they're not hurting anybody else. But... They're doing whatever they want and arrogantly boasting about it. Uh, you can guarantee that if you know someone who is always talking, who is always talking about themselves, who always finds a way to steer a conversation back to them, their favorite topic, you can be sure that there is an underlying issue of pride in their hearts, just like the people in this passage. 
But not only are these people in this passage arrogant about their sin, they are purposefully oppressing the people of God who are not engaging in these wicked acts along with them. Notice that their acts always carry a connotation of violence. They crush, they afflict, they slay, they murder. And it's not only people who who get sick of it and fight back. They are especially despicable because they are picking on the most helpless and most defenseless. They kill widows and orphans, the most helpless and defenseless in the ancient Near East. These are the ones who have absolutely no one to take up their cause. We have the widow. In those days, the man was the provider, the defender. And the widow didn't have that anymore. The orphan had no parent, no one to defend them or take care of them. They did not even have the ability, the physical ability within themselves to take care of themselves. And, and so they were easily oppressed and easily taken advantage of. Don't we have a special kind of anger toward criminals who hurt children? Or to people who attack ladies, little old ladies who are just walking through a parking lot? I remember when uh, Sister Knowles was attacked about eight years ago when Sean was here, right out in our parking lot. And, uh, you know, they caught the guy in the, in the Christian Counseling Center front yard and um, I wanted to introduce him to the sharp heel of my dress shoes and I was all up in his face like they had him on the ground and I was up in his face I was like yeah you think you're a big man don't you picking on some little lit and Sean had to like snatch me from behind because I was you know you get angry when people pick on people that are defenseless but the whole point of these verses the writer is building his argument Building his case against these people. Why? To prompt God to do something about them. Because the author knows that God is concerned about the defenseless. Particularly widows and orphans. Throughout the whole Bible, you'll see it. Widows and orphans hold a special place in God's mind. And they are to be defended and protected. And so the author, not only does he say the most defenseless are being picked on... He says, God, they're taunting you while they're at it. God has let them go on long enough to where they are so comfortable in their sin that they believe God is not concerned. He's not doing anything. He doesn't care. They say, Yahweh does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. But in verse 8, the theme changes. It changes from their perception of the situation to the reality of the situation. Verses 8 through 11. I'll read verse 7 just to give us some transition. They have said, The Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob pay heed. Verse 8. Pay heed, you senseless among the people. And when will you understand, stupid ones? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke even he who teaches man knowledge? The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are a mere 
breath or vanity or futile. The writer says, oh, you think God doesn't understand what's going on? You think God doesn't know what you're doing? You need to stop worrying about what God knows and what God understands and worry about your own understanding, you idiots. That's what he says. He calls them stupid. He addresses them according to their intelligence level. Do you really think the one who made the ear and made the eye does not know and see and hear everything that you're doing? How stupid can you be? But it's easy to forget that God is in control when we see wickedness running rampant. And we see, we see many wicked people almost running rampant in our society today, here in the Bahamas. We see many of them that think that God does not see or hear or care about what they're doing, so they do whatever they want. I remember Pastor Arnett uh, telling me a story about a man who had married a foreigner. And as soon as she got residence, she dropped her husband. And it caused the man to kind of have a breakdown. And Pastor Arnett was finally able to talk to the woman. And one of the first things he asked her was, Do you not fear God? Do you not fear God? In other words, do you really think you're going to get away with this? It's a perceptive question because we do forget that God hears and sees everything. And he keeps a record. He keeps a record of everything that we do. But this record, as this passage will tell us, is not only individual, it is national. Verse 10 is the most unsettling verse in this whole passage, especially if you're a Bahamian in these times we live in today. I don't need to tell you all. Uh, it was a huge topic during the election. I would, I would watch in, from Dallas. I would watch rallies online and you know, read all the updates and everything like that. Uh, I heard something about some posters being put up, some billboards about murder counts. I don't know, right? That was a big deal, right? Those are, those are true things. Um, crime has become the issue in our country. It is a sickness in the hearts of Bahamians. We have no integrity we have become people who will do whatever it takes to get what we want. And I don't need to go into detail about statistics. We know. We feel it. We have a severe problem in our country. And this verse reminds us, what does it say? He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? This verse reminds us that God will discipline us as a nation. And that should drive us to our knees. See, for many of us, the sin of homosexuality has become the worst thing that anybody could do. But you know what God judges even more harshly? Violence. Look at Genesis 6, verse 13, and Jonah 3, verse 8. In Genesis 6, it says, 
And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Violence is the reason God judged the earth and all the people in it. The king of Nineveh called on everyone to repent, to turn from the violence that was in their hands. Because that is why God was going to overthrow their city. See, we are made in the image of God. And when we physically harm each other, it mars that image. And God will not have his image defamed. And so the author is telling us, don't be stupid like the people in this passage who think that God will just continue to sit back and let us individually and as a nation wallow in our own wickedness. Judgment is coming. Discipline will come if you do not repent. Now, having said all that, um, this psalm was written to be an encouragement. encouragement to those who are living righteously in the midst of a violent people. So I don't want us to get too discouraged um, because the author, he overcomes his own discouragement like we we will. Uh, In his third theme, he has a righteous realization. The author, he contrasts the frustrated and futile condition of the natural man's thoughts with the thoughts of a man who walks according to God's laws. Instead of having to be disciplined by God for wickedness, the righteous person is preemptively disciplined by the law so that God does not have to destroy him later. Preemptively disciplined so we don't have to be destroyed Verses 12 through 15. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord. See, these thoughts are not a mere breath. These thoughts are not futile. These thoughts are not vanity or worthless. Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, that you may grant him relief from the days of adversity until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. For judgment will again be righteous. And all the upright in heart will follow it. So after starting out in desperation, then realizing, wait, no, God is still in control. God does see and hear and know everything that's happening. The author has now arrived at a stage of perspective. He knows he can remain faithful to God. Because the outcome for those who are currently unfaithful is far worse. And this will allow him to persevere through the injustice and the unfairness and hardships that are guaranteed to come from being faithful in a fallen world. And just like him, we can have the same perspective. God will not abandon his people. 
He is faithful. He has not forgotten us. Although it may seem like only the wicked prosper, the author is encouraging that business owner, that lonely teenager, that frustrated spouse, that person who doesn't know how they're going to pay their bills. He's encouraging them to remain faithful because one day, judgment will be based on righteousness again. Although everything seems corrupt now, one day it's going to be much better. One day, Jesus is going to rule the earth in perfect righteousness and justice and we will be the ones who benefit. The faithful will be the ones who benefit. But if you're unfaithful, well, we'll get to them. The author then progresses into a time of reflection after he's kind of come back to his senses, so to speak. And so he has a reflection on God's consolation in verses 16 through 19. Who will stand up for me against evildoers? Who will take his stand for me against those who do wickedness? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have dwelt in the abode of silence. If I should say, my foot has slipped, your loving kindness, O Lord, will hold me up. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. Now he remembers Yahweh has always been there. He reflects on times past where it seemed like all hope was lost. But he remembered God saved him. Verses 17 through 19, they're all parallel to each other. They're basically saying the same thing in three different ways. God is always there to help us. Although there were times when he thought he was going to lose everything, he felt like giving up. The pressures of the situation he was in were overwhelming. In every situation, God's love and law were there, ready to support him and sustain him. And so we see it's not just a fear of God's judgment that can motivate us to remain faithful, right? Because he says, eventually there's going to be a pit dug for the wicked. And so we can look at that and say, okay, I'll be faithful because I don't want to be in a pit. But not only is there that fear of judgment that can motivate us, it is the love of God that renews us and is an ongoing reality in our lives. Look, the Lord was his help. His, the Lord's loving kindness will hold him up. The consolations of God delight his soul. But the world we live in, it makes it easy to pull our eyes off God and his promises, doesn't it? And that's normal. That is normal. We are human beings. I don't care if you're a Christian. Situations happen and we're affected by them. The author of God's word was affected by the situations that he was in. Sometimes we think that we're Christians and nothing's supposed to affect us and we're supposed to never have any anxiety about anything. That's unrealistic. And I think it's unbiblical as well. Um, and we look at just the world today. Global, financial crisis, uh, crime, natural disasters, bills, um, just all the natural effects of living in a fallen world. 
But even though you don't always feel it, God's loyal love is upholding you. When those anxious thoughts want to bubble over, we need to be intentional about dwelling on the good things of God, on the good promises of God. If we really believe, if we really believe that God keeps His promises, we can endure any hardship. Because we know He has promised that He loves us and we're going to have a better future. Even if it's way further in the future. God does not change. He keeps His promises. He has been faithful to us. Just like the author realized, in all those hard times, God was faithful and God doesn't change and he will continue to be faithful in the future. And to drive his point home, the, the, the major theme, the major point of this whole psalm, in his last section, the authors, he summarizes God's rejection of those who promote injustice and what will be the outcome of their ways. Verses 20 through 33. 23. Can a throne of destruction be allied with you? One which devises mischief by decree. They band themselves together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has been my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He has brought them, he has brought back their wickedness upon them and will destroy them in their evil. The Lord, our God, will destroy them. God will not tolerate injustice. He refuses to align himself with those who promote injustice, whether directly through their own physical actions or indirectly, he's talking about here, whether it's a government who imposes uh, oppressive policies on people. God has nothing to do with them. And their destruction is guaranteed. The destruction is guaranteed. How do I know? Um, look back at verse 2. When, he, when he's crying out to God, he says, Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the, to the proud. In verse 23, coming back to the end, he says, He has brought back their wickedness upon them. That's the same word in the Hebrew. Where he says to render recompense. And when he says he has brought back the wickedness upon them, it's the same word. He asked them to do it, and he says he has done it. In, in the author's mind, this is as good as done. I've asked God to do it. God has promised to avenge us. It is as good as done. And this is kind of a, a little weird construction in the Hebrew it's kind of like a future perfect construction. I'm going to bore you to death right now. But uh, it's just written in a way that he's looking to the future. At the ultimate end, when God will set everything right, and he's so sure of God's promises, he set it in his mind, it's as good as done now. Is that how secure God's promises are to you? Another way the author wants to make clear 
God is going to guarantee their destruction. The last phrase in verse 23. Uh, well, verse 23. He has brought back their wickedness upon them. And he will destroy them in their evil. The Lord our God will destroy them. Double. Repeat. He will destroy them. He will destroy them. And in the Hebrew, this is all one word. He will destroy them. It's all one word. And in the Hebrew, it's back to back. He will destroy them. He will destroy them. He's being emphatic with this. There is no way oppressive people, people who think that God does not care, and so I'm going to do whatever I want, there is no way you can escape. At the end of the Avengers... Right before the big climactic battle. There's a discussion between Iron Man and Loki. The good guy and the bad guy. And Loki says, I have an army. And Iron Man says, we have a Hulk. Right? The Incredible Hulk is on their side. I think we have someone much better than the Incredible Hulk who is on our side. Who can do a lot more damage than the Incredible Hulk. We have the God of vengeance. We have the God of the universe who has promised that if we remain faithful today, he will rule righteously over us in the future and the wicked will be gone. This psalm has showed us how we can handle desperate times. Yes, we cry out to God Because our pain is real. But like the author, we must also remember God is still in control. He has not forgotten us. He is not ignoring our situation. And then we realize we can remain faithful instead of giving up on our holiness. Because it is better to suffer through injustice now than to join the side of the oppressors and become perpetrators of injustice. Why? Because God is going to establish righteousness and destroy the wicked. When that day comes, which side will you be on? Let's pray. I want us to uh, just have a, a few minutes of prayer. I want you to just sit there and pray. And I'll give you some topics to pray about. The first thing I want you to pray about is what is, what is that thing that you do that you really hope God doesn't see? That thing that you continue to do, that you know God is not pleased with, that you need to repent of. Confess that to Him.
we all have many ways in which we stumble. And God is merciful. Thank Him for His mercy. Take a minute, take a minute to pray for our country. Pray for just the attitude, the spirit that has taken over so many of the people that are willing to do whatever it takes. Pray for God to reach them. Pray for God's mercy upon them. Ask God to help you to continue to be faithful. Thank Him for His promise that one day righteousness will rule. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for who you are, um, that you are a God of justice, that you do not let the oppressed suffer unabated, that you do step in, that you judge righteously. Lord, we, we thank you for your mercy on us. We pray for your continued mercy. We pray for our country, God. That you would change the hearts of our people. That you would continue to change our hearts. Help us to love those people, God. Help us not to want to take our own, even mental vengeance against them. Let's learn to love them. And leave all the judgment to you, Father. Lord, we thank you once again for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.